0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and for the Middle Eastern Studies series, my guest today is Gabriel Schwake. Gabriel is the author of Dwelling on the Green Line, Privatize and Rule in Israel-Palestine, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Concealed... Within the walls of settlements along the Green Line, the border between Israel and the occupied West Bank is a complex history of territoriality, privatization, and multifaceted class dynamics. Since the late 1970s, the state aimed to expand the heavily populated coastal area eastwards into the occupied Palestinian territories, granting favor groups of individuals, developers, and entrepreneurs the ability to influence the formation of built space as a means to continuously develop and settle national frontiers. As these settlements developed, they became a physical manifestation of the relationship between the political interest to control space and the ability to form it. Telling a social, political, and economic story from an architectural and urban history perspective, the author, Gabriel Schwacke, shows how this production of space can be seen not only as a cultural phenomenon, but also as one that is deeply entangled with geopolitical agendas. But before we delve into all of this, first things first, Gabriel, welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me here. I'm really happy to join you in
0: this conversation. First question, can you tell us something about yourself And I think listeners will be fascinated by your very interesting uh, personal story and also about the origins of the book. Um, It's hard for me to to
1: decide where to start from my profession, my background, my personal one. But I I, I usually start with my profession for some reason, not, not that I think that it's the most important thing. So I'm a trained architect and urban designer, eventually turned historian. Uh, I was born in Galilee, Northern Galilee, and uh, was raised in Nazareth and uh, also a little bit in Haifa. And I then moved to Tel Aviv to do my studies and my work. Uh, I'm currently an assistant professor of architecture history and heritage studies at the Freie University of Amsterdam. That's where now I live and conduct my everyday life. Um, so after studying architecture at uh, Tel Aviv University, I began I say, my first steps as a practitioner um and i was really looking forward to being involved say, in social housing projects and you know to tackle the issues of, of urban living and sustainable everyday life that was say my main focus uh but i was uh, recurrently amazed let's say from the influence that questions of marketability investment speculations you know on real estate considerations uh how yeah the the scope of influence that they have on both urban and architectural design processes. So that's why I decided to start with a doctoral project on this topic, trying to take, this, say, this um, historical tipping point in which these values began to prevail and eventually led me to writing this book. I'm interested
0: about uh, sort of the uh, structure of the book and the goals. So this is a book about planning, architecture, mm-hmm. and economy. And i was wondering if you can describe for us the main goals of your narrative so in general i was as, as i said before i wanted to understand how architecture and cities
1: are influenced by by economy yeah so many by issues that go beyond questions of culture customs uh, or you know uh, traditional ways of life um, and here uh, the area that I'm focusing on, yeah, the 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 area along the Green Line, yeah, uh, it's called the border between the pre-67 Israel and the occupied West Bank. For me, it was here the collaboration between the state and its territorial interests and private agents, uh, which uh, presented a different way to look at things. And these private agents, whether they're individuals, construction companies, or large uh, investors, and what I was Yeah, amazed to see how the first, you know, the state, was uh, dictating where new settlements should be built. Uh, And it was the private market, uh, the the latter, that received the ability to to dictate how these settlements would eventually look like. So let's say the state was uh, drawing ink stains on the map. Uh, It was the private sector who was uh, uh, translating these ink stains into concrete settlements. Um, so eventually for me it was the idea of seeing how economy uh, would together combined with state interests uh, dictated let's say the streets the urban layouts and all, uh, also the houses that these settlements comprise and so on and so on. So going into eventually the, the inner design of a specific dwelling unit.
0: Now you talked about uh, the green line so I want to uh, you know, keep this conversation for a Few minutes um, about geography because in the book you talk about a very important uh, uh, sort of uh, area. Let's call it that, like that, which is the Trans-Israel Highway, and um, you know perhaps you can define this and uh, what is in the importance in, in your book and and also in terms of like the real impact of this idea. I, I agree with you. it is it,
1: we should explain this. Uh, um, uh, let's say the the importance of this area. So I would go a step back first, and I would say that if my interest was to to, uh, to detect this uh, historical tipping point, uh, the question when we're doing historical research is what is our focus So what is our case study? And I started looking at this area mainly as a case study. And uh, so, as I said, I was, before embarking on, on an academic career, was, I was living in Tel Aviv, and I say in my pre-doc days. And I would then take the car to visit my parents up north in Nazareth every other week, uh, and I would drive them uh, along the the uh, the Trans-Israel Highway, yeah, Road Number Six, as it's also known. Um, and thanks to that road, uh, instead of driving for two and a half hours, that would it would take me an hour and a half. Uh, um, uh, if as long as you're not going through rush hour then it could take you also four, five hours. Uh, and driving along the this incredible piece of infrastructure. It's hard not, not to realize that the construction boom uh, that this area has witnessed and is now uh, continuing continuing to witness uh, this constant development of of uh, of different uh, real estate projects. But at the same time, when driving along this uh, highway, uh, we always need to remember that it's a bit adjacent to the Green Line. Um, and uh, most of the construction in this area began taking place since 19, uh, since the late 1970s, so after the occupation of the West Bank, as a means to enhance the state's control of this formal border area uh, and eventually also to create a territorial sequence between you know, what we call Israel proper and the settlements in the occupied territories. Uh, and this happened then parallel to the privatization of the local economy. So this area then formed for me the ideal
0: case study to examine the spatial manifestation of state privatization. I want to stay again um, on the question of your methodological approach, as we located uh, sort of uh, the area of your research and obviously the object of your research. I, I want to ask about the question of power. Power is at the center of your methodological approach. And so I was wondering if you can tell us more about your theoretical background, which does really include... Uh, questions about economy, architecture, history, planning, and also the sources that you have used.
1: Power is indeed uh, a central uh, concept in, in this book and in my uh, writing uh, in general. Uh, and, yeah, of course, we always uh, when thinking about space and power We immediately go, go to uh, theorists like you know, Foucault and other uh, his main, let's say, French uh, uh, contemporaries. Uh, but I actually chose to make a more, say, Marxist approach to, to power. So relying on the concepts of modes, relations, and means of production, and then focusing mainly on the work of the Frankfurt School. So the the so-called the neo Marxists, so Adorno, Horkheimer, Marcuse, and and uh, these fellows, who explain how power relations endure over time and how they transform while also transforming uh, culture with them. And I think. Uh, this is how we see today, uh, the idea of power uh, as more as a diffused uh, system, so a series of coalitions between different interest groups. This is why it chose also to use Kim Dovey's distinction between the power over, so how to control something or someone, and the power to, so to be able to do something. And I coupled that with the, with the concept of spatial privilege, which I uh, developed according to the space stratification f- theory of Alba, Logan, Moloch and others, uh, that um, uh, refers to the ability of specific, usually favored uh, groups to influence the, the process of spatial production. So it's, not, it's the idea of seeing power in space not just you know as this straightforward conspiracy, but a set of processes that in a way correlate, contradict, but
0: uh, endure over time. Let's move forward with the book, and I want to start talking about uh, chapter two. So chapter two is um, an historical chapter essentially. It deals with the question of built space, and it offers a very interesting discussion in relation to key terms like territory and territoriality. Can you speak about the idea of a territorial project in relation to Israel and how it evolved since the beginning of the 20th century? Uh, Yeah.
1: I think this is the, the the way to look at Israeli territoriality. Yeah. So when we're dealing with the subject, I think we did, we needed to look at it in a perspective or a prism of 150 years at least, um, seeing it as a process that began in the second half of the 19th century with the construction of the first Zionist settlements in Palestine. You know, the the first Aliyah, the second Aliyah, and here we also we have to to mention that there is, isn't one Zionist ideology. Yeah, but actually a catalog of different Uh, zionist ideologies nevertheless the prevailing one was that uh, that saw Palestine as the land without people to the people without land which needs then to be redeemed through settlement and agriculture Um, and while uh, we hardly have any agriculture today we still see how strong this idea is even in 2023 Uh, the need to secure control over the land by the construction of new settlements so applying a marxist perspective uh, we see how this evolved together with the changes in the relations of production so starting with agricultural settlements in the pre-state years then moving to industrial towns in the 50s and 60s and then community settlements and then suburbs in the 80s and, and 90s and to what we have today uh, this hybrid of high-rise suburbia that we see from uh, yeah from modin to uh to Malea uh, Dumim and all the way to to Khalish in the in the north.
0: I'm interested in a concept that you discuss in this chapter, the question of a domestication of the eastern frontier. Can you elaborate on this particular idea? When starting the Maurice I didn't even
1: think of frontier, and then uh, my dear friend and colleague and uh, uh, Jaime Kobi told me, "No, you have to think of the idea of frontier," and. Um, and so we have to also think of the definition of what a frontier is, which is usually this idea that's perceived as being accepted from the norm, so not fully incorporated into the societal consensus or what we call the subtle psyche, uh, either because it's far away, uh, not settled, contested, or settled by people who are not from the ruling uh, hegemony. So the, uh, domestic and the frontier is precisely the act of making it an undisputed part of the national consensus and in the case of israel palestine it is through the through the act of settlement uh, but uh, not any settlement uh, many ones that are affiliated uh, um, as not too religious or extremist but rather ones that are secular uh, you know belonging to the veteran sector of israeli society when uh, through this uh, specific group then an area is fully domesticated and turned from a frontier into part of the consensus,
0: and I think we should say that for listeners who are not familiar with the geography of Israel, since you talked about earlier Road Number Six, uh, particularly in the northern section, it's really a border kind of road because when you drive, you actually are bordering the West Bank, and you can see uh, the the wall separating Israel and and Palestine. So. It's not just an ideal frontier. It's not something uh, imaginary line, but actually it's a real line that divides two people. Yes, exactly. And uh, there were some attempts, perhaps not deliberate, but
1: uh, you see that when you're driving around Calkilia and Turkarem, how uh, there were um, uh, the separation wall was hidden by trees. So you don't really see the separation wall. Um, and one cannot wonder, one cannot... Uh, uh, avoid wondering whether that was intentional or not. You know, to make you forget that you're dealing with this, con- and, uh, that you're driving along contested area and just enjoying, you know, the the 21st uh, s- style century of uh, of uh, of infrastructure.
0: I I would be very cynical and uh, argue that probably it was done on purpose. But you know, we should uh, uh, collect evidence to prove the case. But exactly. knowing the history of uh, Deleting uh, evidence um, of the past, uh, particularly after 1948, with the uh, creation of forests in some parts of, uh, uh, you know, the, the basically areas that were inhabited by Palestinians, villages and small uh, rural areas. So one can, uh, you know, connect the other, but of course it's uh, it's much more complex than that. In Chapter Three focuses on the community settlements which you call a neo-rural phenomenon. And you're looking at several case studies. So I was wondering if you can first of all explain, you know, what is a community settlement, what do you mean by neo-rural phenomenon, and you know, you can link this with uh, one or two of the examples that you discuss in the book so you can give us a sense of uh, their evolution and how they evolve uh, uh, up to today well actually N- N- neoliberal is actually one of the concepts that I'm really
1: glad that I was able to apply to the context of Israel Palestine because I-, I believe in a way it is short-lived this the narrow the reality of community settlements but I think it it has it plays a key role in how these things developed uh, because yeah we think of the these community settlements uh, in Hebrew they're called Mushavim kehilatim or yishuvim kehilatim which uh, emerged, let's say, during the 1970s in the West Bank, but also in Galilee, uh, the, the the famous uh, uh, Judaization of Galilee, the, the uh, uh, uh project. And initially, they were not suburban. We perceive them today as suburban settlements, but they did not uh, start as, as, as suburban uh, settlements. Because we have to remember that suburban living comprises a big private house outside of the city, but also a daily commute to the city. Uh, So the connection to the urban center is is therefore never lost. And uh, we need to remember that these areas that we're dealing with, either uh, Upper Galilee or the West Bank, um, were not that well connected to to the main metropolises during the 1970s and also during the uh, early 1980s. And actually this detachment from, from urban centers is exactly what city dwellers that were moving to these areas were looking for. So to be disconnected, to get in touch with nature, to develop an alternative and somehow communal lifestyle, highly resembling the early kibbutzim and moshavim, but also a bit different. I'd say in a way quite also new age, because um, we have to remember that, that at that time, so late 1970s, early 80s, agriculture uh, in Israel started diminishing. It became uh, less and less important. Uh, so uh, and these these new settlements had either very little. Uh, settlement mainly because there are also no farming lands available. We have to remember, in the context of of uh, of the West Bank, um, the it is uh, the Israel is able to claim uh, uh, uncultivated areas as public lands and then to, to use them for settlement. So usually these we the, the areas not uh, um, uh, uh, properly uh, available or not let's say. Um, usable for farming purposes. So in that sense, they cannot be agricultural settlements. But that's only one issue. We had also to remember that the, that the the um, um, the city boys and girls that they were that they were moving to these new settlements also lacked the needed experience. But also, I think in the larger context, uh, the historical one, early nineteen eighties, we see agriculture began disappearing from Israel. Many the small scale one that that these settlements could have. Uh, developed, so we hear we see here this peculiar combination of a rural settlement yet without any agricultural functions, um, and this is what we had, for example, in Salit and Rehan, two settlements in the West Bank, one in the northern West Bank, one just you know just in the center, uh, uh, um, which today are quite uh, suburban, but they actually began as moshavim and then gradually turned into community settlements. Uh, And today we see that they became totally uh, suburban just when the roads arrived, especially road number six. So turning them from frontier settlements, um, but in the process of more than 20 uh, years uh, into what we know them today, in a way quite uh, quite livable and accommodating uh, family-oriented settlements with high living standards. It
0: it just made me think about uh, the fact that uh, on the other hand, some of these um, these old style uh, neo rural settlements have been developing in the south of Israel, particularly in the Negev, where you have uh, again connected to idea of uh, uh, you know sort of a different kind of uh, living, and you have these uh, small communities off the grid uh, that they try to be isolated, and you know they're connected to obviously uh, new age ideology and so forth. But th- that's a kind of a different development. One thing that I think is very important is that obviously community settlements were at the beginning connected also to a sort of a socialist ideology. And so they, again, they're community. They bring people in. They work together. But in the same chapter, you talk about uh, the next step, which is the individualization process. So the idea that uh, the individual becomes more important than the group. And so I was wondering if you can tell us more about uh, this individualization process, and how it's reflected in the economic and political changes that unfolded in Israel. Well,
1: as as many of us know, uh, Israel is founded on a a national identity with strong communal aspects. Socialism was was really influential, and this was true for both rural settlements like the Kibbutzim and Moshavim, but also in in, in the urban context, even if it was not really carried out and uh, it has sectarian aspects to it, uh, this was at least the, the main and the formal ideology. And architecture and urban planning, uh, and when we're talking about architecture and urban planning, we see this in the communal settlements, but also in housing estates uh, built in different uh, uh, development towns, all made, and how they were all made out of small family units sharing a common open space. Okay, I don't say kibbutzim, you have the big uh, lawn with all the small units around it, or let's say even in the in the modernist housing estates with the with the with the small dwelling units uh, and uh, in one communal house, and then laid out also in 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 uh, in one uh, shared uh, open space. Um, but the privatization of Israel uh, brought this going or growing focus uh, on the individual and uh, his or her family. Uh, and uh, this is not why uh, we can be surprised. We see that the emergence of the private house with the fence and the garden and, and they also the introvert apartment building uh, uh, developing just a um, uh, parallel to this process. I once tried to call this Americanization of, of Israel uh, or perhaps I think the individualization is, is perhaps, uh,
0: yes, a better term to, to define this phenomenon. Now, moving forward, you talk about... Uh... The process of gentrification, which is also connected, obviously, with this idea of individualization. So moving away from this community, a process actually of gentrification that I personally witnessed firsthand in my 20 years of regular visits to Israel, you are making the case that suburban settlements were and are, I believe, part of a new phase in the national geopolitical project. You also use a very powerful image. The domestication of a green line gentrification however occurs if you have a middle class eager to transform their lifestyle uh, yes I, I think
1: i think gentrification is uh, in general uh, a very exciting topic to deal with mainly because uh, uh, of the the common misconception that we we have on it now worldwide uh we see this you know as this uh, it's perceived with this, this spontaneous process, you know, starting with artists and bohemians moving into a rundown neighborhood and then, you know, turning it to this hip place and then come, you know, the, the young professionals and then the families and even then a richer clientele that eventually replace the existing community. And uh, this is how we, you know, perceive it or discuss it, whether it we're doing Soho or London or Berlin today, uh, or Tel Aviv, Jaffa. Um, uh, so uh, this is to say the global uh, uh, approach to it. This is never actually a spontaneous process, as it's, it's not me as many other researchers have, have discussed. This uh, it's rather let's say a part of a well coordinated process intended to develop areas through their social transformation. Um, so it's actually by bringing in people, certain people, certain groups, enabling them to develop a certain area. Uh, that uh, say establishment institutions promote then the development of certain areas. And uh, this is what I uh, uh, saw that was happening or happened at least in, uh, uh, along the green line during the 1980s. So, I, therefore, I was I was uh, perhaps uh, uh, in a way forced to call this a, a process of gentrification um, uh, because I was seeing how this. Uh, by I say by bringing the secular upper middle class uh the veteran secular upper middle class uh, into this area it was then d- domesticated and the, those were usually city dwellers you know from strong uh, social political affiliations um either through uh, uh party membership uh um, military mem- uh, uh, roles um uh, or or other let's say uh, affiliations in terms of uh Uh, of um, unions, and so on, uh, who received the opportunity to build their own communities in the area. And, uh, um, yeah, that that might sound like, let's say, formal examples, but this was totally different. And we don't have any communal features here now, but rather suburban layouts with large villas, fences, and of course, roads meant to facilitate this daily commute to the city that we we, we discussed earlier. And we see this in both uh, sides of the Green Line, yeah. So either Al-Feh which is inside the West Bank, or Kuhavie, which is just a border with the with, with the with the West Bank. And they were all initiated for or by young urban families with an influential affiliation, as, as we mentioned. So Al-Feh uh, started as as a as a uh, settlement uh, uh, for for military officers, and Kuhavie started as uh, uh, for. Um, uh, uh, members of the youngsters of the, party, so the Likud party, uh, but also then also unions and military officers as well. And so when these influential uh, uh, youngsters came to the green line, they were able to then, to transform it into the place where the local political and, and cultural hegemony lives, turning into, let's say, a, a part of the national consensus, a place where others could or
0: would like to live in uh, as well. You just mentioned Khokhavia here, and I was wondering if you can give us a better sense of the development of this uh, uh, village now, small town, because I think it's a um, it's a very good example of this kind of gentrification, how these places by the border change in time, and also, you know, saw the arrival of uh, uh, new people linked to a particular ideology and represent the political goals. Of a state or a particular government, that is saying, but Kojavir is a fascinating case study just because it is so
1: simple in a way—the the way in which it was developed. It started as an uh, initiative, of uh, as uh, the the youngsters of the 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 uh, movement, I mainly uh, uh, Michael Eitan, who was uh, uh, the head of the uh, youngsters of the Chuvd movement, then uh, later. Uh, uh, parliament member and also minister, and they were looking for a place to settle, uh, preferably in the West Bank, uh, not more than 40 minutes, uh, current traffic to Tel Aviv. This is quote unquote, not more than 40 minutes. And uh, then they decided to meet with uh, Ariel Sharon, who was then uh, the Minister of Agriculture. Um, and uh, he told them, and this is all through interviews with Mikhail Etan uh i don't i told him well why don't you take this place it's not in the west bank but it is uh, near what was called the the small triangle so the arab uh, towns uh, uh, inside israel east of uh, sorry west of the green line uh, and he said that yeah, we have um, it has its own uh, um uh, national importance because we have to prevent um uh, you know this the, the, the sphere of the territorial sequence between uh, Arab sequence, uh, the cross-border one. And uh, yeah, and the youngsters agreed, and this is how they received the plot. And then uh, then became, you know, this this in a way, I would not call it turf battle, but you can call it turf battle of different associations connected to uh, the ruling regime. Then it was Likud. So it was the youngsters of the of uh, the the movement, but also military officers of the Ministry of Defense, uh, and also uh, different uh, uh, Zionist associations, mainly the Zionist Association of South Africa, uh, who gets more uh, uh, plots to its members. Yeah, just fascinating to see that how this dynamics and who gets the ability to build the house in in uh, in uh, in that area, and it is fascinating because we uh, it, it was not let's say uh, a totally private uh, thing it was not a kibbutz you don't have to be a member of of some kind of ideology but if you were not connected to a certain influential group the chances of you of getting a house in khabir was yeah did not exist of course you can today buy a house in khabir for quite a, a, a nice sum uh, from someone who received all, almost uh For free 20 years ago from the government. Um, So this is in a way also how influential groups are able to transform their uh, uh, political capital into financial one as well, but on the long
0: run. It's a fascinating story, right? We could just spend the podcast talking about these examples, but uh, I want to move forward because then in chapter five, you shift and uh, you talk about a different kind of process. Suburbanization. So you move from the process of gentrification to the process of suburbanization. And I was wondering if you can tell us more about this process and also the differences between the two. The gentrification
1: process was also a suburbanization process. What happened afterwards is more, more I would call it more a mass suburbanization. Um, and uh, because, let's say, after the area was was gentrified, uh, private contractors then uh, could now you know, take the lead. There's now an economic rationale. It turned into a place where others would like to live in. Therefore, we see that the state now could endorse a more efficient process, something mm-hmm. resembling more to say an assembly line, so locating a site of territorial importance, planning it, tendering it, constructing, and then settling. And we see how this also started from let's say small suburban settlements, let's say Soran, Bat or and then uh, with you know private houses, but more uh, m- much more uh, customized. Sorry, much more um, uh, um, uh, mass produced. Uh, so we have let's say uh, single dwelling uh, typologies, repetitive construction, repetitive houses, repetitive streets. Uh, but still small scale and eventually these led to the large scale developments that we see that have been built let's say s- uh, since the late 1990s early 2000s along the area um uh, let's say in the extensions of let's say Sovietsk or uh, uh those were orthodox town of elad
0: and i just want to ask you to uh, talk a little bit more about elad and also the other star uh settlement modiin well Modi'in and and uh, and uh, elad uh, in a way
1: they are um uh our, our, elad is more a statistical uh, uh anomaly in that sense it started as it should have been something quite similar to kuhaveil it should have been a settlement of up to 2500 dwelling units uh, so 10000 inhabitants you know uh, usually these are very uh, uh, quote-unquote normative families, you know, uh, a man, a woman, two kids, a dog. So uh, dwelling units is usually translated into four four inhabitants. Uh, And yeah, so it was supposed to be one an additional upper-middle-class secular veteran uh, 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 settlement. Uh, But uh, uh, during the coalition talks, we're talking about mid-1990s, the the Orthodox to ultra-Orthodox parties had quite a, a strong influence and one of the things that they were able to get from uh, Ariel Sharon who was now uh, a, a Minister of Infrastructure if I remember correctly uh, because you, you see Ariel Sharon every time gets a different uh, uh, um, uh, influential uh, role in, in settlements other Minister of Defense, Agriculture and eventually infrastructure and then Prime Minister. Now it was infrastructure, and uh, yeah, part of the coalition agreement. You know, to to, to please their their uh, their uh, uh, their partners for the coalition, he had to surrender the site uh, and turned into uh, uh, a neutralist town, which is in a way an anomaly. It is. It was then quite strange in the the, the social uh, societal composition along with the green line. Uh, Modine is uh, is uh, it got let's say the kick in the 1990s, uh, but the idea of developing the Modine was much much older, uh, at least two decades uh, starting with let's say the 1960s, uh, then 70s becoming more concrete in the 1980s. Uh, I didn't deal with Modine too much, uh, but I think that Modine would not have been possible without uh, the gentrification and also ma- early mass suburbanization that uh, uh um that to say facilitated its its uh, construction the economic rationale behind it the 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 uh, the demand for housing in that area and we see that for example in the construction of riut which is a upper upper middle class uh, small scale suburban settlements then settled by by um officers um um not only from the air force but with a strong uh, presence of air force uh, officers um, and it was stated by the the, the government in the uh, uh, in the decision to construct Reut that it forms as the first step of establishing a city in the area so we see that by bringing these officers uh, you know that we uh, we should uh, adore yours the aura that they bring with them uh, they transform this uh, quiet inhabitable space, this quiet frontier area into a place where a city of, yeah, probably at the end, of more than 100,000 inhabitants uh, should be built or could be built.
0: What I found fascinating about Modi is also the fact that it's connected to the uh, uh, very problematic road uh, 443, which in a sense... Give some respite uh, to the heavy traffic of uh, and surrounding Jerusalem, but it is also connected to um, sort of political uh, issues. The very fact that it goes through the West Bank and essentially it's for Israeli only. But obviously, we're not delving into that. But it really, uh, I think, connecting Modi in its development, connecting it with the road, it really shows the complexities of the build up of Israel nothing is essentially non-politicized in the region. I think that the, the, uh, nothing is non-politicized. I think it's uh,
1: perhaps uh, uh, the most accurate uh, thing one could say about construction in Israel. And uh, this was, for me, uh, fascinating uh, because when I was uh, talking to, uh, when I was interviewing people living in these settlements, um, and uh, let's say I would interview people who, are clearly the perceived as not right, or so left, or left-leaning, or center-left, uh, they would say we're not ideological. They would also, because they understood more or less what I'm trying to ask, they would initially start by a political statement uh, intended to make me understand that they are, they are not part of, let's say, they're not extremists. Still, they, never, uh, they always found it important to, to state at some point in the conversation that there is also a Zionist or a territorial uh, importance to them living there. Um, and uh, I was always wondering why. And because I, I was uh, wondering whether uh, these were people who, say, cynically used the, the territorial enterprise in order to get a, a good house or the other way around. And I think that it is impossible to do the crime impossible to say this is economical, this is, this is territorial. It is exactly the combination of both that makes it, in a way, into such a successful uh, project.
0: So in the last chapter, you introducing the uh, economic question, which is discussed throughout the book. But here you really talk about the financialization, which is connected with the privatization of Israeli settlements. Can you speak about this process? So when when I talk about financialization, I mean
1: uh, we have something here that is a bit a bit much more complex than just simple construction of new houses and dwelling units and you know the selling of dwelling units and the the, the marketing of them. But rather we have here this entangled relationship of investment-driven planning, which starts from large-scale entrepreneurs uh, and then goes all the way to small-scale individuals who are the investors yeah. here. So the intention here of the government was to create a market which would attract these large-scale entrepreneurs to build in the area, but also the small-scale investors who would buy the apartments uh, either to rent them out or to live in, and, but with, 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 uh, um, with the prospect you know of, of making uh, profits at the end. Um, so we have, uh, in that sense, uh, the settlers turn into uh, real, um, or to say, concrete investors or shareholders in this uh, in the, the national territorial process. And uh, I, I call this the shift between um, uh, the focus on housing to focus on assets. And this is this difference I think is quite important to state. Um, and because this is not an Israeli phenomenon, yeah, but rather an international one. We see investment-driven planning uh, all, all taking place all around the world. It, what we see here now is how it's utilized to uh, to serve national and territorial interests. And the scope So the, this influence uh, has transformed drastically the built environment. And when one sees this also in the urban layout and the replication of the same housing topologies, and the, the, the repetitive dwelling units, um, and I think this is what makes, let's say, the, the the area along the green line into an extreme case study for privatization.
0: Now, in this chapter, you focus on Arish. Arish is a very interesting example because today it's probably around uh, uh, a city of thirty-five thousand people, but it's projected to be a city of one hundred thousand by twenty thirty, and essentially this uh, uh, demographic growth, it's meant to counterbalance the adjacent Palestinian towns just across the Green Line. Well, yes, uh, uh, Harish is an extraordinary example for, uh, yeah, for several
1: reasons. So we have to go back a bit in time and see that the Israeli government has been trying to develop a Jewish city in the area of Wadi Aras since the, the late 1960s, uh, because it's a predominantly Arab uh, area inside Israel and it's also just in, uh, adjacent to the West Bank. And so, as we said, this, the fear of the territorial sequence uh, between, let's say, uh, yeah, towns like uh or uh, Al-Fahim, uh, 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 and their, you know, so their ability uh, to then um, uh, challenge Israel, Israeli uh, control of the area is quite, quite large if such a territorial sequence is, is created. And we see them in archival materials, how the choice uh, for, uh, for for Kharish was an outcome, not a question of livability or suitability of planning, because there, there were other sites possible. There was one site, for example, just north of Kufarkara that was not chosen. Um, uh, so the choice was made mainly due to the ability of the site uh, uh, to, um, to stop or to cut off any possible cross-border Arab uh, sequences, but the problem of 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 Harish, if we can go on like that, was that um, uh, Israel of the 1970s and 80s, when this idea started to to emerge, was no longer operating this, this old socialist manner. If uh, of you know, just uh, let's build a city in the middle of nowhere and just put immigrants in it, and everything will be fine. There had to be some kind of economic rationale. Um, okay, there was a short-lived kibbutz in the area, and we see that. Uh, but uh, mainly we see that starting from the 1980s that we see this growing emphasis on building a city but then who would live there uh so back then practically no one when we when we say no one we mean you know the the, the main uh the, the main uh, sector you know the, the veteran um, uh, middle class secular uh, israeli sector um and this is why, you know, the first attempt to to uh, to, uh, to build a city there in the nineteen early nineteen eighties nineteen nineties, sorry, was stopped mainly as the government understood that if it built a city in the area, and Jewish Israelis were not probably be, uh, be interested in coming, that most of the future tenants would actually be Arab families from Wadi Ara. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, fearing, let's say, this double-edged sword, yeah, for territorial settlement turned Arab by the market, by the free market, the, the project was stopped. This is why by the early uh, 2000, or let's say late 1990 or 2000, it was decided then to turn Kharish into an ultra-orthodox city, thinking that this would prevent the site's uh, uh, Arabization. And we see similar initiatives when, let's say, the the the, the, uh, the Israeli hegemony is not, is not interested in a site or a city, then uh, there's a plea to, to the ultra-orthodox sector because of its communal, uh, 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 formation because its ability to draw uh, large uh, uh, um, uh, numbers. Uh, so we see that, for example, in, in in Nazareth, in Upper Nazareth, or today called Nochal Galil. Uh, but anyhow, uh, returning to Harich, what happened is that fo- following the 2011 uh, social justice protests, which focused mainly on the questions of housing and affordability, uh, all of a sudden it was it was now of interest to the, to the larger Israeli public. And it also then turned into this new frontier for secular middle class uh, that was not able to live in Tel, Tel- Aviv area, uh, uh, was now uh, had then to look for new opportunities somewhere else. And it also turned into uh, something that could be given to that uh, uh, middle class as a way to to, uh, to relax and uh, to, to soothe them, uh, but uh, to bring them uh, into the, the the national and territorial process uh, by answering their their need or their protest for um, uh, affordable housing.
0: Can you share with us some of your conclusions? Um, well, I I try, I try
1: to uh, not to make my conclusions be uh, too much um, um, depressing <laughs> because we, ne- we need to to remain uh, somehow also optimistic uh but uh i would say that uh, if we rely constantly on the private market to do things then uh it will just take uh, over everything you know? because we see eventually how uh, this uh, homogenization of space is taking place um uh, uh, but uh we're losing in, in that sense the way uh, uh uh, any possibility of creating a livable space, but I think that the main conclusion, uh, which is not that optimistic, is that we see uh, we we usually think of privatization as something that contradicts state's interests. Uh, we usually think, yeah, well, okay, we have the state and we have the private market, and uh, this is uh, these these are two really uh, they are totally disconnected and in a way also contradicting. Uh, but uh, it's actually the other way around, because there, there's no real free market. You know, The market is always created by state, and if they're created by states, they have to serve the interests of the state. And uh, um, the question is whether we could use the free market to challenge national agendas, then this is something that I'm trying to look at now. Uh, um, I'm trying so, to, so if I was dealing with the idea of privatized colonization, I'm wondering around whether we can speak of privatized decolonization and whether market-led initiatives could, in a way, uh, be connected to the idea of, let's say, self-affirmation. But let's say that perhaps the way we see today, as long as we don't have something new on the table, if we just continue with the status quo of planning, and I'm not just speaking about Israel-Palestine, I'm just speaking, let's say, to the larger a uh, um, uh, question of uh, of uh, privatization housing and territoriality and national interests uh then uh, the uh, uh space the stratification segregation uh in terms of let's say ethnic segregation but also uh, economic one will only increase this is why we see how this is um, we see the growing literature and the concept of uh, neo-apartheid uh which as uh, a phenomenon that we see in uh, all around the world so from sao paulo to to beijing this uh, separation between different uh, classes uh, and uh, these classes usually have a color in israel they do as well and the question is uh, how do we stop them this is something that um, unfortunately when you're dealing with history you cannot answer these questions but uh, let's say that uh, this is something that this is a question that has to be on our mind constantly
0: this was Gabriel Schwake, author of Dwelling on the Green Line, Privatizing Rule in Israel-Palestine, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Gabriel, thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, Fernando. Really, I enjoyed it.